Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. We are in part seven of our walk through the book of Acts. Jason today is talking about Peter's sermon. In a sermon he's entitled, Peter's Powerful Preaching. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and today we're looking at verses 14 through 21. Here's Jason. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Jason, the, the senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church, and we are very excited to have you joining us this morning. We are continuing through our study of the book of Acts. And today what what we are going to see is Peter's Powerful Preaching, Part 1. And I'm not sure exactly how many parts there are going to be (laughs) this particular passages that we're going to be looking at, but it is quite a joyous day and I'm excited about what the Lord has for us. And preparing this sermon, I I kept being reminded of, of something that happened to us in Papua New Guinea as a, a woman was, was married into our village and she was an outsider from actually the Sepik River and she'd been in our village I think for maybe two or three weeks and she'd been coming to the teaching to our church time and yet she just didn't seem very excited about the church time. And one day after church I was walking by and her new husband and her were sitting and and as I walked by, her husband said something like, oh, she just doesn't like the church. And I stopped and I sat down with them and, and, and I said, so, so tell me, what, what, what's wrong with, with our church service? And, and she said, well, it's not long enough. And I said, oh, really? And, and, and you guys would really laugh if you actually went to Papua New Guinea and, and sat in one of these church services because we don't have chairs. So you have to sit down on a hard bark floor and, and honestly, I'd, I'd teach for an hour to an hour and a half, and then we'd have questions, and that'd go for another hour. So it, it would, yeah, it's quite possible that the church service would go two and a half hours at times, if not longer. And so then I asked her, well, how long is your church service? And, and she said, oh, five hours, if not longer. We go for hours and hours and hours and hours. And, and I said, okay, well, what does that look like? What do you mean you go for hours? What do you do? And she said, oh, well, we, we praise the Lord. We worship. We sing. Okay. She said, and, and some of us cry. And some of us laugh. And some of us roll on the ground around here and over there. Some of us give testimony at the same time others are giving testimony. At the same time others are giving testimony. And she says, it's great. It's just like one great whole bunch of sounds going everywhere and you can't really hear what's going on. And, Okay, so yeah, sounds great. And then as she's, she's telling me more and more and, and, and it just gets more and more outlandish the more she talks. The one thing that's missing is, is this, the Word. And I said, well, well, you haven't mentioned anything about the teaching time. She says, oh yeah, we do that. And I said, well, how long is that? And she says, oh, 15 minutes. She says, the problem with, with here is you and, and how long you take. You, you need to stop teaching so much. And, and we just need to worship. And, and, and is that what church should be? How important is the, the, the preaching 
of God's Word. And what we're going to look at today is, is we're going to see the importance of preaching. This, this, this verb caruso in, in, in the Greek, which, which often is translated proclaim. How often do we see preaching? And, and, and is it significant, as I believe it is, that we see it right from the start? That yes, they were gathering as one. That yes, they were praying. And then as the Spirit comes, what happens? He stands up and He preaches as we're going to see today. So, so we're going to see just the importance of preaching God's wonderful Word. So turn with me to, to Acts chapter 2. And let's read together the very first sermon that, that, that we see in Christ's church given by Peter. Starting in verse 14 and, and we're going to go to 21 today. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would teach us now. Teach us the importance of preaching. Teach us the importance of relying upon Your Holy Spirit. Teach us the importance of Your Word and how it is the foundation of the church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So you'll notice in your, in your bulletin that we, we do have some fill-in-the-blanks here. For today, as, as I said, we're, we're going to see the, the first sermon ever preached in Christ's church. And, and in this sermon in particular, we're, we're going to see three ingredients that are needed for powerful preaching, for God-honoring preaching. And that is that preaching must be what? First, it must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. Second, we're going to see from, from Peter that it must be grounded in the Word of God. And finally, that it is centered on Christ. God-honoring preaching must be centered on Christ. Christ must be present. Now, I, I also put an outline in your notes, and, and actually Peter's sermon includes much more than just two sections, but we're only going to cover the first two today. And, and those would be the correction in verses 14 to 15 and then the explanation in verses 16 to 21. But he's not going to stop there. He's going he's gonna to go on after the explanation and, and really he's going to give a presentation. He's going to give a presentation of the gospel. He's, he's going to tie everything together and bring them to Christ. And, and then he's going to ha- 
have them make, make a decision. He's going to call them to action, call them to something. And then we're going to see the result of that. So let's unpack this. One verse at a time. Starting at, at verse 14. And first we'll see the introduction. How Peter starts. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. The, the, his first word there, the but, ties in to everything that we saw last week and even the weeks before it. It goes back to, to, to honestly Christ in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, saying that he's going to what? He's going to send the Holy Spirit and they were to stay in Jerusalem. And so we saw them gather in Jerusalem. And then on this day, unlike any other day in the world, the day that Christ's church is born, we saw all these things happen from heaven as, as a noise like a violent wind comes. And, that, and what does that do? That gathers everybody. So, so Peter seriously has the biggest crowd you could think of that are there just waiting, wondering. And then we saw their response, right? That there was two different responses. And, and, and majority of the crowd was saying, what does this mean? And then we saw at the, at the very end of verse 13, while others were mocking. And they were saying, oh, we know what this means. It means that these guys are drunk. That's why they're speaking in tongues. And so what do we see? We see first Peter. We've seen Peter take a stand as a leader before. And as I mentioned earlier in, in Acts, that oftentimes as we see him in the gospel, he, he's not the picture-perfect model of a, of a leader. Oftentimes he... His mouth runs far ahead of where the rest of them should be, right? And he has to come back at times. But now, man, we see a new Peter. And, I, and I, again, I believe it's because of the interaction that he had with the risen Lord and Savior and how Christ must have taught them. And so, so now he's really grasping the significance of how the Old Testament fits in with what they are seeing vividly displayed right before their eyes. And that's where he's going to take them. But he's not alone. Did you notice that? It says, but Peter taking a stand with who? With the eleven. With Peter included, that's twelve. So obviously they've included Matthias. That my, Matthias has been brought in as, as one of the twelve. And why is it important that there's twelve? Well, it's because they are the foundation. The foundation stones of the church that Christ is going to be building. That is started here. And who is the ultimate chief cornerstone? Christ Himself. And that's why we see Christ at work throughout the book of Acts, as well as the Holy Spirit. And right here we're going to see the Holy Spirit empowering Peter. And so what does He do? He takes His stand with the eleven, raised His voice. The, the voice there is the same word used in, in, in two one for the noise, in two six for the sound. It's singular. It's, it gives the idea that nobody else is talking. And that Peter, for, by God's grace and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, has everybody's attention. And this may not seem like a big deal to you, but some people believe there was over 100,000 people there. 100 to 200,000. And, and notice it says that he raised his voice. Literally, that he raised his voice. Why is that? Well, because they, he wasn't mic'd up like I am this morning. And he wasn't in a closed kind of amphitheater or anything like that. And there were so many people that what did he have to do? He had to project his voice. And, and, and I believe the Spirit was empowering him to do that. But it, it, 
It doesn't stop there. It says, He raised His voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. So so we know who it was. It was the same ones that we had already talked about. Those that lived in, in that area. He says two things to them. Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Both of those are commands. He's telling me you don't have an option. Listen to me. It's literally give me your ears. In Papua New Guinea, they'd say, don't let your ears drop. Listen to this. Why? Because he's going to explain to them. First in the correction of what the wrong response was, right? That's the first thing we're going to see. He's going to explain to them exactly The fact is that they weren't drunk and then he's going to give them the truth of what was happening. No doubt that that what he was doing here in in essence was different than what had been happening. Because at the beginning, we'll see in verse 6, when they started speaking in tongues, that there's many tongues, there's many people speaking, and now there's a contrast with the not the many, but the one, right? This is one man standing up. And, and I believe, too, that there's also a contrast in showing that, that they are one and the same because that was only done through the filling, the controlling of the Holy Spirit, that they were able to speak in tongues. And now, Peter, the only way that this sermon is actually going to have fruit, which we're going to see next week or maybe two weeks, that 3,000 are going to come to believe is if the Spirit is empowering him, if if the Spirit is giving him these words to say. So what Peter is going to do, he's going to explain what's taking place. But first he's going to give them this. Preaching must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to to preach. The preacher must rely on the Holy Spirit. And then we'll see the correction. This is probably like the shortest refutation, refute, defense of something that that you'll ever see. It's just a short little verse in, in, in 15, right? For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So, so what does he say? First, he, he says, these men are not drunk. You guys say they're drunk, but, but they are not drunk. He corrects them quickly, sharply, but notice he, he's not rude about it. He's not doing it in a demeaning way. And In fact, if, if, if we understand the culture, he's, he's also doing it in a fully culturally appropriate way. Because you and I, when we hear this, we're, well, that doesn't make any sense. What, who, who cares what time of day it was? I see guys getting drunk all the time and just because this is happening in the morning doesn't mean anything for us in our culture, but for them it means a lot. Because first, they started their day off at 6 a.m., so saying it's the third hour is his equivalent way of saying it's 9 a.m. But for the Jewish people, on, on, on holy days or special days or feast days of the feast or any of these things, which would in, include Pentecost, which would have included the Sabbath, they don't drink at all. 
And so instead of having to give this elaborate explanation, he just goes right at it and says, hey, this can't be the case. They're not drunk because you know what day it is. And you know what time of the day it is. End of subject. And then he goes on and he says, okay, this is the explanation. Okay, yes. Those of you who said that it was because they're drunk, you're wrong. And here's the right answer. And he, and he says this next in, in verse 16. Because this is where he's going to point them to. He's going to point them to God's Word. But this, again, the contrast from... It's not that they're drunk, but the reason is this, is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. He's saying it's not that these guys are drunk, but it's this is the fulfillment of Scripture. This isn't my idea. This isn't my opinion. This isn't what I think, what I believe. This is what God's Word says. And that is what He is standing upon. And, and that's what a sermon should be based upon. It should be based upon God's Word. That we should be going back to God's Word. And in Papua New Guinea, sometimes when people would come and, and preach in, in, in our church, a, a guy would come and he'd spend two minutes reading the Word and he'd spend 40 minutes talking. And, 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 and the people would say, oh, that man closed his Bible and he's just giving his own thoughts instead of actually preaching the Word. And here we see Peter preaching the Word. And what does he base everything on? He bases everything on this prophet Joel who spoke the words of God and then was, those words were then written down. We have to understand first, what is a prophet? And is, is this a special kind of person? And very much it is. It, it in the Greek, it's, it's, it's the term prophetess, and it means one who speaks in the place of or a spokesman. And in Papua New Guinea, we didn't have all sorts of different ideas as, as we do here. I, I know that there's people now going around saying that, that they are indeed a prophet. And, and we have to recognize that when somebody makes that claim or they say, I've received a word from the Lord, they're claiming to be God's spokesperson. In very much the same way that, that we're seeing here, Joel lifted up as a prophet. And the significance behind that is that God's Word clearly delineates kind of a test, a litmus test for prophets. That if they didn't live up to this test, there were severe consequences. As in death, <laughs> they would die, they would be killed. And, and the three tests, they're, they're pretty simple. The first test is because generally prophecy has to do with foretelling of the future, telling what's going to happen in the future. In order for them to be a bona fide, God-honoring prophet, a true prophet, they had to be accurate. They had to be 100% accurate, as Deuteronomy 18.20-22 says. And if they weren't 100% accurate, then they died. That was the repercussion. So there was a lot on the line for you to come up and say you're a prophet. Number two, they had to be doctrinally sound. That means that whatever had been already communicated as far as God's Word, they had to align themselves with that. Perfectly what, with what had been previously revealed. And Deuteronomy 13, 1-5 says that if, if a prophet pulled the Israelites away from God, 
away from what God had already told them they should be doing. And, and, and then, in essence, led them to idolatry and to worshiping someone else instead of the true God of Israel, that then that prophet w- would be killed. And then finally, and, and, and if these other ones weren't strong enough to go ahead and, 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 and see that, that there aren't prophets today in, in, in this term, the way that we see here, is they had to be morally pure. And, and, and this would knock almost all of them out. They had to have personal holiness. Why? Because they were representing God. And this is talked about in, in, in Jeremiah 23, 14-16, as, as well as Second Peter 2, 1-3. And if they were involved in immorality, then they would die. That was it. But notice how, how Peter speaks of, of Joel in such a way that, that he's saying that whatever Joel says, God says. And, and that is just a profound statement that that is what he's saying, that, that, that what the prophet Joel said was then inspired because that is what he's going to quote next. And how often do we actually see prophets talking today that are speaking the inspired word? We don't because Revelation says if you add to this word, you can't. And you can't take away from it. You know, I think that, that many of us, and, and oftentimes when we think of Pentecost, we think of the miraculous. And we think of, oh man, I, I just love to see tongues like that. Or I just love to see this, or I love to see that. And, and may, many, many of you are, are excited. Well, what is Pastor Jason going to say about visions and dreams and this and that? And, and you're real excited about this morning for that reason. And, 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 and there's a, a part of me that's just like that. <laughs> But you know what God's been bringing me back to over and over again is, Jason, don't miss the biggest miracle here. You know what the biggest miracle is? It it isn't the speaking in tongues. And up to this point, we haven't seen visions. We haven't seen any dreams. So he's talking about what's going to happen in the future. And even when we see it, it's not going to hold a candle to what we're going to see at the very end of chapter 2. And you you know what that is? The salvation of 3,000 souls. That is the biggest miracle. And all of chapter 2 and anything that we've seen up to this point. Because before this point, they were lost. But by the preaching of God's Word and the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, how many? So many came. 3,000 came to the Lord. That's amazing. But I need to give a little bit of a background into the book of Joel before we jump into what Peter talks about here. And quotes almost verbatim. He just changes a couple little things. And the biggest thing we have to remember about the book of Joel is the main theme, what Joel speaks about again and again throughout his book of Joel is the final coming day of judgment. The day of the Lord. That is the theme of the book. And that's what his entire book is, is based upon. And it's, it's what he comes at and he goes towards again and again and again. But it's interesting to note that when he actually wrote this book, that there was a major catastrophe that happened in Israel and a whole bunch of locusts came and they ate the ground up and they got, it got to the point to where there was no more green anywhere. Which is a, quite a big catastrophe when we're talking about people that 
survive based upon their gardens, kind of like the people in Papua New Guinea. So you would think that if there was any time where the Israelites would want to hear some encouragement about, hey, this isn't going to all be bleak and, and, and tomorrow the sun's going to shine and, and you're going to have all your crops back and this and that. But the, but the reality is Joel doesn't go right there. But at some point in the middle of his book, which is right what Peter quotes here, he gives a little bit of sunshine and hope as he talks about how the Lord will one day restore the things of Israel. That He will bring blessing upon His people. By doing what? By sending His Spirit. So let's look at, at verses 17 to 18. Which again is taken directly from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit on all my mankind, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. So what does he start off with? He starts off with actually something that isn't the same in the book of Joel. Because he gives us a time word. He lets us know exactly when this is supposed to be happening. He says, and it shall be in the last days. And in the book of Joel, it actually says in the hereafter. It, it doesn't confine it. It doesn't give us exactly when this is supposed to happen. We don't know. But when Peter brings it up, he says, no, this is going to happen in the last days. Why? Because he's letting us know that we are indeed in the last days of God's redemptive program, of God's redemptive plan. And that these last days started when? When Christ came. With the appearance of Christ on the earth, and when will these last days end? They will end with His coming again, with His second coming. But what the Jews didn't understand was that they only thought of of, of the Messiah coming once. And so they missed this whole aspect of what Isaiah 53 talks about, that the suffering servant would come, and that's what the Messiah would do first. And then later, He would come as the King to establish His kingdom, as Isaiah 9 talks about. So I believe what Peter is getting at is that that this is an initial fulfillment of what we're going to see in in, in Joel. But this isn't a complete fulfillment, meaning that everything that this talks about happened, either at the crucifixion of Christ or right here on Pentecost, because it's, it's too vast and it's too specific, and, and, and we can't go to the crucifixion of Christ and see every one of these things. And so I, I believe what it's saying is this complete fulfillment is, is going to happen in the millennial kingdom when Christ comes to establish His kingdom. Notice first what He says is that God says that I will pour forth of My Spirit. That, that verb pour forth actually gives the, the imagery of a torrential downpour. Not just a little bit. And, and, and even though Pentecost was incredibly exciting, it wasn't the whole world. It wasn't the whole earth. It, it was right here in, in Jerusalem. And, he, and he's saying, no, this is going to go forth on all of mankind. And then he, then he goes into what the results of, of this pouring forth are going to look like and, and, and what they're going to do what they're going to accomplish as a result of the Spirit being poured forth. And he shows who's going to be involved. And, he, and, 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 and there's parallels here. The sons and the daughters, the young men and the old men, 
the servants, both men and women, three parallel groups, showing that, that, that all genders are included, all works of life, everyone. It's not case-specific. The Spirit is going to go forth upon everyone. And I think we, we see this, that there are prophetesses in, in the Old Testament. This isn't new, right? We see prophetesses such as Miriam in, in Exodus 15, Deborah in Judges 4, Huldah in, in 2 Kings 22, and, and then even in, in just the beginning of, of the New Testament with Anna. And notice how prophecy is stated here. It's kind of bookend. I think at times we'd like to say, oh, let's, let's talk about the dream and the dreams and, and, and the dreams are so important and then the, the seeing visions. But prophecy is, is mentioned twice and it's bookend. So you see it at the beginning of 17 with the daughters, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then you see it at the very end of 18 that both men and women in those days as the... Spirit is poured forth upon them. They will what? They will prophesy. And so that is something that we will see. And we will see it in, in abundance in, in the millennial kingdom. But I do want to talk a, a little bit about this dreaming of dreams and, and, and these visions. Because that is something that, that, you, that we saw a lot in the Old Testament. That that is how God worked. Oftentimes we're, we're guys having dreams or, or visions. And yet, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, it's kind of like tongues. It, it gets a lot of fanfare, but there's not a, a whole lot of passages of Scripture that we're going to go to and we're going to see just vision after vision after vision that we're not going we're, we're, we're to see dream after dream after dream. And when we get out of the book of Acts, even less so. We will see it, but it's not something that we could say is, Oh, this is the norm for every believer. And if you haven't had some, some dream, then you, you must not have the Holy Spirit. If you haven't had some vision, because actually when we, we look at the visions, you know who the two guys are that, that are having them mostly in the book of Acts? Peter and Paul. It's, it's not everyone. But how would you define prophesy? Okay, so we talked a little bit about what a prophet is and how to validate a prophetic Ministry, or, or, or the man is a prophet looking at, at his, his life. And I would define prophecy something like this. It's, it's an authoritative declaration or speaking forth on the behalf of God. It's, it's again, you being God's spokesman, but it's kind of prophecy in particular is, is declaring whatever God would say and oftentimes, as we think about prophecy, we think in terms of the future, explaining some event that's going to happen. And I believe it's, it's, it's encompassing the, the office of prophet as well as this gift, this outworking of prophecy. And Scripture over and over again in the Old Testament gives us so many prophecies that, that you just... You can't explain in any other way except to say that it's a miraculous work of God. Because there's things that guys write down that they have no idea about. Isaiah 53, he gives vivid details into the crucifixion of Christ 700 years before Christ even comes. Isaiah 44 talks about this Cyrus, king of Persia, long before Cyrus was ever around. And then it even talks about the fact that 
that he's going to help rebuild the temple. Well, well, at this time, the temple was not needing to be rebuilt. It wasn't destroyed yet. How can you explain that? You can't explain that except for God. And, and, and that's why I think at times with modern prophecy and the craze, and it's, it's, it's just limited. It's made so, so small. When what we see from Scripture, it's not small. It's something miraculous. It's something great. It's something that can't be explained. And it's something that's 100% right over and over and over again. So is, is, is prophecy seen, in, and I've heard this. I never heard this in Papua New Guinea, but I've heard it here a lot. That is prophecy in the Old Testament different from prophecy that we see in the New Testament? Come on, Pastor Jason, lighten up a little bit. These guys, they're saying that they're modern day prophets. That's not the same as them being a prophet in the Old Testament. Really? Well, then take me, Pastor Jason, to somebody in the New Testament that looks just like a prophet from the Old Testament. Well, okay, I'm glad you asked. Agabus. We're, 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 okay, I can't take you now because we're going to go there later. But Acts 21. Wait. Acts 11, 27 to 28. Acts 21, 10 to 11. Then finally 28, 17. Agabus makes these crazy predictions, these crazy prophecies. And, and before the book's even finished, it, it shows us that they were right, that they were spot on. But it's not just his prophecies that were spot on. It's actually the way that he communicates that sounds a whole lot like what you would see in the Old Testament. Except for his usages, he would say this. He would say, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Whereas if you went to Isaiah 7-7, Ezekiel 5-5, Amos 1-3, Micah 2-3, Nahum 1-2, they would say, this is what the Lord says. That's the only difference. So I would say, yes, they are one and the same. And it is amazing what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament as well as what we're going to see the Holy Spirit do throughout the New Testament. Is, God, is the Holy Spirit still doing miraculous things? Yes, I said all of that is, is minimalized compared to what we're going to see at the end of this sermon. Because the Holy Spirit is still doing mighty, mighty works. But look at what he says in 19 and 20. Back to Acts chapter 2. Because it's just not the Holy Spirit empowering his people to do these miraculous things in, in, in the millennial kingdom where everyone will be saved and so the Holy Spirit could c- come upon everyone. But look at this. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So here we see God's activity. The other activity we saw was the the Holy Spirit. This is God the Father. And what is He going to do? He's going to do these cosmic signs. And I'll let you know that there's two different ways that people interpret this and look at this. Some look at this from, from the vantage point of Oh, this has already been completely fulfilled. And, and, and that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that, that, that darkness that came over, man, that's a complete fulfillment of this. And, and there was actually something going on with the moon. And, and it kind of came blood red because of an eclipse or, or this or that. And, and they would say, oh, yes, so, so that proves that this was completely fulfilled. And, and yet the reality is there's so much more. What about the fire? What about the vapor of smoke? And, and what about the initial thing that we already saw where the, the Spirit is poured onto 
to everyone. No, I, I believe what's going on, what we've seen and what we see in Pentecost, and I believe even looking back to Christ, that there is a partial fulfillment. But it's not a complete fulfillment. It's a, it's a sort of, oh, this is, this is only a glimpse into what's going to happen in the future. And what's going to happen in the future is exactly what it says. The moon is going to turn into blood. How does that happen? I don't know. How did God do so many things in the Old Testament that don't make sense? Because God's God and He can do it. And that's what walking by faith is and taking Him at His word and standing on His word. But what is this day of the Lord? Do you you see the, the emphasis there? Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. When when you see day of the Lord in Scripture, it kind of has two different nuances. Sometimes it's just speaking of any time that God acts in judgment. Other times, especially in the book of Joel, the, the, the meaning is a lot more focused in. And in, in, in this case, it's one specific particular day in view. It's the day of the Lord associated with what? With the second coming of Christ and the judgment that he will bring. It's going to be a decisive time of, of judgment that the Old Testament often talked about. It's the reason why over and over again the disciples are, hey, is this the time? Is this the time? Right? Are you going to overthrow Rome? Are you going to overthrow... That's what they thought because they, that's what they naturally assumed was going to happen. And what, again, what they missed Isaiah 53. That's what he's talking about with, with the day of the Lord. And notice when, when we see blood, when we see fire, when we see this vapor of smoke, all of that speaks to judgment and the upheaval that's going to take place on the day of the Lord. And in that, is that not a great cause and, and call to then say, but you know what, that judgment is not here yet. You still have time to what? To repent. And look at what he, what he ends with in, in verse 21. And we'll finish with this. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then he directs everything, what? Towards, ta- towards salvation. And I believe to, to Christ Himself. Because the, this word, call on the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, Joel wrote it as Yahweh which you know is God's personal name. You can't say that out loud, right? And it was the same name that God gave to Moses. When Moses asked him, well, well, when I get there and they ask me, who sent me? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And he says, I am. The great I am. The self-existing one. The one above all others. So much so that Jesus said that. And you remember what happened? They wanted to kill him. Because they recognize that he was saying that he is indeed God. And so that is where Peter is going. He's letting them know right off the start, man, this is all about Christ. This whole day is about Christ. And you guys crucified him. And this idea of calling upon the name of the Lord, that's, that's just an expression for, for responding to the gospel, which is what he's going to call them to. He wants a response to the gospel, which is what we're going to see next week. Praise the Lord for, for His goodness. For allowing you and I to know that we don't need to be scared of this day of the Lord that is coming. That that day of the Lord 
is not going to do anything for you and I. Because we are what? We are not standing under His wrath anymore. For those of us that have trusted in Christ, we're not under His wrath. We are His what? His children. But for those of you who don't know Christ as Savior, man, now is the day. You don't know what's going to happen when you leave here this morning. Consider exactly what is being talked about here. There is a coming wrath. There is a day of the Lord and it is coming because God has never lied. He never will lie. And what He says does come to fruition. So what have we seen? We've seen that preaching must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that it must be grounded in the Word, that it must be centered on Christ. And what can you take home with you? These two things. I know there's lots of things for us to chew on and to think about because there is so much truth in here. And you can, you can chew on other things as well, but the two things that, that the Lord kept bringing back to me was, were these two things. Think about preaching this week. How important is preaching in the life of the church? And number two actually kind of comes back to me a little bit. Think about what makes up good preaching this week. What have you learned from Peter's sermon which informs you of what good preaching is and what is bad preaching? And may I be completely honest and say that I am still new at this? I don't stand before you as someone that has all the answers to, to, to how to preach the best sermon. So please pray for me. And trust that the Lord will continue to have His way. And if you hear something, or you see me going off to where Christ is not mentioned, God's Word is not stood upon, and that the Holy Spirit is not present, man, come and talk to me, please. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You once again for Your Word and how it speaks into our situation today, right now with where we live, that even though this happened so many years ago, Lord, that, that we know that Your Word has power. We know that we can stand upon Your Word And we know, Lord, just how important the preaching of Your Word is. We pray that You would just raise up more and more preachers, teachers of Your Word, who would be faithful to Your Word, who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and who would allow all the things that they say to be centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Go with us now as we leave here this morning. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.